I'm Kate Daniels. We see the signs of much global earth and climate change on a regular basis now. And we likely feel that we're doing all that we can about it, but perhaps there's more and perhaps we just aren't aware of all the possibilities for positive steps and positive change. Jack Kerfoot, a scientist and energy expert and the author of Fueling America, An Insider's Journey, is with us now to impart some great information. Jack Kerfoot, good morning. It is so great to have you join us this morning. Kate, it's truly a pleasure to be on your show today. And what a... I'm going to say a hot topic. I think that might be a word that is too close to the truth here, but we're talking energy, and this is really a hot topic. It's a topic right at the forefront of uh, most of our conversations, and yet there's just so much controversy about this. So let's see if we can unravel some of this and get some clarity. Very good. So I believe that with your book, we are able to get some insights, fueling America, an insider's journey. An insider is correct. You've spent, uh, what, about four decades in the energy field. Uh, That's right. And the reason I put uh, an insider's journey is when I did an analysis of other books on the energy, I was surprised to learn that of the 30 bestsellers, only one person who was actually wrote a book on renewable energy on wind turbines, actually had a career or actual involvement in the industry itself. The vast majority are uh, journalists that are telling other people's story. And so here you are telling your story, and uh, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, I've had the opportunity to travel the world and work with a diverse uh, group of people from scientists to sheiks, potentates, uh, ministers uh, around the world. Um, And so I've had a wonderful career working with some very interesting and exciting people as we uh, try and address the different energy issues across the past four decades. In the 70s, when I was in university, the first crisis was actually the oil crisis. Uh, Remember, in 1973, there was an oil embargo against the United States. So at the time, people were lined up literally for miles around a gas station to buy four or five gallons of gasoline. But that's evolved now to a different type of crisis that we're faced with, which is an increased concentration of CO2. And so for that reason, I'm a very strong advocate for the move to renewable energy and away from fossil fuel. And this is coming from a person who spent so much of your life right in that field of uh non-renewable energy with oil, with fossil fuels? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But the thing we have to realize, I have to smile at times when I hear people saying it's science, as if science is absolute. But science is based on, you look at data, and from that you make interpretations. Uh, so as you gain more data and more insight, then you can recognize the reasons for a change. Uh, you know, we can debate the... Uh, climate change and fossil fuel, and I like to say it's a theory and it's not a certainty, but is it a risk we want to take? And I would argue no. But on top of that, what is not debatable is that CO2 from gasoline, diesel, coal, and natural gas causes air pollution. If you visit cities like Houston or Denver or Los Angeles, you can not only see the pollution from a distance, you can actually smell it when you're in the city itself. 
And if you've lived or been in major cities in, in Asia, like in China or in India, in Mumbai, New Delhi, Beijing, in the winter months, the pollution is so strong, every, it's actually toxic. People, everyone wears a mask, and the mask is white in the morning, but in the afternoon it's all gray or black. So you can extend your arm, and you can't even see the end of your, your hand in November and December during the inversion time. So CO2 emissions do cause air pollution, and it can be extremely toxic, and it is toxic in high concentrations. The other thing I like to ask people, uh, especially climate skeptics, is do you like to save money? I have yet to have anyone tell me no. And I ask that question simply because with the new technology and renewable energy, if you take out all tax credits and incentives, the cheapest form of power right now is onshore wind at about 5.2 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, the average cost of electricity in the U.S. is over 12.5 cents a kilowatt hour. So after onshore wind, the next cheapest is solar, and then hydro, and then natural gas. And right now, coal is almost triple the cost of power from onshore wind and solar. And yet, there's just this investment. Uh, I don't know if it's emotional. There is a commercial investment in coal. It's right down at the bottom of the list. And it's so toxic to our environment compared to all the clean energy available. And so what is the passion that's tied up in that? Well, perhaps some of it is uh, change. Uh, People find uh, change difficult to address. But actually, the, the United States has been going, and the world, but particularly the United States, has been going through an energy revolution. And in 2005, when the 2005 energy bill was passed, it was a bipartisan bill signed in by President, then-President Bush. The U.S. was using coal for over 51% of our power. In April of this year, the U.S. government Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, announced that actually renewable energy was generating more power than coal for the first time ever. So we're seeing a dramatic change in our power sources across the United States. And these changes are being driven. There is a desire by the utilities to reduce emissions, but the primary driver that the utilities are looking for is reliable power and cost. And the renewable energy certainly provides both of those. And I think that we can see, yes, change is difficult and challenging, but the fact is that, as you're saying here, Jack, that there is this big industry that is happening now, that we're seeing the change, and that revolves and results in a good economy. Absolutely. And what people will sometimes argue, yes, but there are loss of jobs for the coal industry. But what we have to realize is that no fossil fuel is renewable. And so when you have a coal mine, as soon as you start to mine the coal, as the coal is mined, then the mines typically lay off the people as the mines become less efficient uh, to maintain operation. And ultimately, the mines will be closed. So the jobs in renewable are effectively, you know, wind turbines can be replaced, and so they can continue as long as the winds blow and the solar parks, the sun is shining. And what you're actually finding is that these renewable energy projects, the wind farms and the solar parks, are now actively out recruiting in the coal industry looking for people because they have experience in major operations and they understand safety and process and procedure. So they can train these people from the coal industry or even the oil and gas sector. 
And the people that are making the moves are finding they have job security, and the jobs are very well-paying as well. So the actual occurrence that's happening, there are really no job losses. Actually, we're seeing increases in jobs, and uh, there are job security and opportunities for good-paying jobs across the United States. To hear you say that as a scientist and someone who's been doing the research and been really knee-deep or maybe shoulder-deep in the industry, it's so great to hear this because we may think that there's a logic to it, but if we don't have the facts, that education, then uh, it's hard to really counteract that. But here you're telling us this, and that is such exciting news. It is. I think sometimes the intensity of the debate, we get, unfortunately, some people that uh, will grab a headline and try and charge forward in efforts that are well-intended. The Green New Deal that was originally sponsored was, I think, well-intended, but the people that were proposing it really don't understand the energy industry. They were talking about changing out 83 or 85% of our power both fossil fuel and nuclear in only a 10-year period of time and replacing it exclusively with renewables. The reality is, if we look across the United States, the climates are different. The Pacific Northwest is certainly different from the Southwest or the Southeast or the Northeast. So certain areas are more opportunity to go 100% renewable. In the state of Washington, you're over 72% of your power is renewable. You know, you have hydro, you have some wind and even solar. But if you look at other areas, like in the southeast, around Florida, densely populated state, so they have the opportunity for solar, and they're certainly developing solar. But their wind and their hydro potential is very limited. So they really will require nuclear power to maintain their current power supply. And the issue, the idea of the Green New Deal, really didn't address some of the major issues. And one of the major issues, quite candidly, is the permitting process to get approval to build any new power plant. They have to go to the city, the county, the state, the federal government. And sometimes these can take an extended five, six, seven, or more years to get the final approval. Recently, around 2017, what would have been the largest wind farm in the world uh, was canceled in uh, Panhandle of Oklahoma. And it would have provided power uh, to Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Arkansas, and even Louisiana. But the project was canceled because they couldn't get the final 350-mile permit to lay the power lines from the wind farm to the utilities. So some of the challenges we have, unfortunately, our legislatures don't fully appreciate all the factors that are involved in the complex energy industry. So this may educate us a little more. When you talk about the issue then with Oklahoma and that 350 miles, it was permitting that was needed from the county or the cities in that area? That's right, yes. Uh, And of course, whenever you lay high line or power line wires, people uh, sometimes take exception. The idea is, you know, not in my backyard, if you only don't like power lines in there. But sometimes you even find that the resistance comes from environmental groups. They have opposed in the past certain areas of uh, solar parks because they take up green space and the environmental groups are opposed to converting the green space to solar parks. So again, what we have to look at from a federal standpoint is what is the most important priority. If climate and air quality and cost and jobs are a priority, sometimes we'll have to make sacrifices 
for other areas that we may not like, but for the greater good, it's the right thing to do. Yes, there seems to be education that is greatly needed on so many fronts. And we think of wanting to save the green spaces. And yes, we do need to do that. But certainly we can find a way to be compatible with each other. Use this area so that we have clean energy. That That's certainly going to keep us here a lot longer than if we go the other route. Absolutely. And the other thing that's changed is actually utilities as they've been moving more and more to renewable energy. Right now, the largest source of of CO2 emissions is actually from transportation. And the next revolution that's occurring in the United States is actually in transportation. I expect by as soon as 2025, we may see more electric vehicles being purchased than combustion engines. Uh, There's an economic reason for that, simply because the fuel costs are so low and electric vehicles are coming down in cost and new batteries are being developed. A car can now be driven with some of the new batteries that are out over 500 miles. And more importantly, they can be recharged in less than five minutes for a full charge. So now we're talking about the speed and efficiency of fueling a car or refueling a car the same time with gasoline. But the challenge is going to be you're going to move from your fuel source from the refineries that make gasoline and diesel to the utilities for the recharging. So that's going to put an extra strain on the utilities because the extra demand as we move to electric vehicles will probably increase 20 to 30 percent demand on our utilities across the United States. And thus... We certainly need to be growing that to accommodate a cleaner transportation system. Absolutely. Absolutely. A question about electric vehicles, and we see more of the buses here in the Northwest as electric vehicles. We know the cars are on the roads as well. I've wondered about the batteries. This is a little bit older knowledge or information that the batteries were something that were a challenge to recycle or dispose of? Well, actually, well, there's a good news from that standpoint. Actually, what you'll find, typically all electric cars now, they're guaranteed, batteries are guaranteed for 10 years, and typically they will last 10, excuse me, 12 to 15 years. But what you're finding is when those batteries are finished after, let's say, 10 or 15 years, Most of the time, they end up in a solar park or a wind farm with battery storage. So the wind, of course, the wind is usually typically stronger at night, and, of course, the sun only shines during the day. So these uh, renewable energy operations that require battery storage to be able to provide power 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they'll typically now be shipped off to renewable energy projects for battery storage where they can be used another seven to ten years. And then after that, these days, they're actually sent out and they're almost 100% recycled. The components are actually melted down or recycled to be reused again to make additional batteries. So the good news is that once they are taken out of a vehicle, because the vehicle perhaps is not functional anymore, they do go to battery storage and are used. Absolutely. Right? Wow. So here we are, great, important information, bringing us more up to date on what's going on in our world and uh, motivating us to move forward. 
So we are learning, uh, we can get this information. We should mention this book, your book, Fueling America, An Insider's Journey, is, of course, readily available, both in paperback now and on Kindle. I love having Kindle because it's so portable. We can, uh, although paperback is, of course, too. But how do we get your book, Jack? Uh, well, you can go to my webpage, uh, com. I have a link on my webpage. Uh, it goes right to Amazon. Uh, Amazon is one of several uh, uh, organizations, so does uh, Books a Million, that offers the book uh, on paperback. Uh, so just go to Amazon and type in uh, Fueling America by Jack Kerfoot, and uh, you should be able to find it right away. And uh, they found that they're very reliable in getting the books to the people at that time. So I think it's important, one plug I'll put in there is I got a comment on my webpage from someone that said they had trepidation about buying the book because they thought it would be an overly technical book. And they sent me a note and they said it was actually a very enjoyable and sometimes quite humorous story of my travels around the world dealing with different cultures. And they said at the end of every chapter, I snuck in educational facts about energy. At the end of it, they felt that they'd learned quite a bit in a very sneaky way. So they enjoyed the book and gave me very uh, positive feedback from that standpoint. (laughs) So this is not a highly technical book. This is a book written of my journey around the industry. But then I try and explain the major changes of the energy industry. Every few years, as I relocate around the world from Australia, Asia, Africa, Europe, South America, and North America. So totally underscores what we're all about is telling stories, because we just learn so magnificently, I believe, from reading about, hearing stories. It's a way that we can internalize it better. Yes. Uh, Well, I hope so. That was the whole purpose, is to try and make an entertaining and enjoyable read at the same time, provide people information to pull back the curtain on sometimes what can be a very complex and difficult topic to understand. So with your wealth of knowledge and your desire to be educating and informing and and being someone who, you know, has a all this experience and is willing to to share it, are you sought out by by these officials in government, uh, by uh, those in the energy field to to try and and make a a better thrust forward? Uh, Well, I am. I'm actually been since the the, uh, inception of the Green New Deal, I've gotten quite a bit of interest in calls from different uh, groups, and including, of course, radio stations and television stations to discuss the, the topic. Uh, but yes, also internationally, I still have very close contacts and friends with uh, people in the Middle East to help them. And what's, what people may find interesting, they think of uh, oil and gas in the Middle East and nothing else. But you're actually seeing in the Middle East uh, the uh, government state-run oil companies are now provide, installing solar for their local consumption uh, for power or the local generation of power so they can continue to export oil primary oil, but also sometimes gas, uh, which is their primary source of revenue or gross domestic product. Uh, So, yes, they're getting increasing interest in the move to renewable energy, uh, perhaps for some selfish reasons, but uh, the main thing is they're making that move to renewable energy also. Do you foresee that we will move completely away from oil, or is there... The supplies are dwindling, uh, and if we were to continue at this 
rate, I think uh, those supplies are, are going to be gone within, what, a couple of decades at most? Well, uh, <clears throat> right now we're consuming over 37 billion barrels of oil a year. And we are replacing the, what we are producing at a rate of only 2 or 3%. British Petroleum estimates there's probably about 50 years left of oil reserves that we have from that standpoint, probably more of natural gas. Coal, the highest quality coal, anthracite, has been completely, almost virtually mined out. So now that's one of the reasons the price for coal for power has, has increased because now it's going to a lower quality coal. So it takes more coal to generate the same amount of power from the higher quality coal. And so the major cost for the coal usually is the transportation on the rail or uh, by shipping. And so the shipping costs now far exceed the cost of uh, the actual cost of coal on a BTU basis or a cost of a metric ton basis. The answer to your question is uh, what I expect we'll see is uh, more volatility in the oil price, and so we will see as supply and demand gets tighter, and it's getting tighter every year, more swings up for the price of oil. Uh, and as the price of oil continues to increase upward, then what we'll see is people conserving simply because it's such an expensive commodity. We use, of course, oil in so many things that people don't even think about, not only just in plastics, but everything from toothpaste to colognes, uh, to the shoes, clothing we have with synthetics, uh, wax-based products, all of this have got uh, oil and gas components. So even medicines from that standpoint and things that only people don't even think about, like soft-contact lenses, have a petroleum component in them as well. So I think we'll be forced to ultimately move away from coal, but I think the economics will be the driving factor. And uh, my push to make the move to renewable energy, quite candidly, is I've I vividly recall the oil crisis in the 70s and what it did to our economy and the difficulty uh, on the industry and the people uh, trying to deal with these high oil prices. And it's now is the time to make the move to renewables before oil and gas and, and even coal become so expensive that uh, it basically uh, creates a hardship across the world because of cost. And there's such a... Um counterintuitive piece of this in terms of transporting coal and oil across the oceans every which way and the fuel that it takes for that and what it does to to our air quality too to do that to think of locally producing our energy makes such common sense yeah ab absolutely and that's what people have to stand back and look at it like you said it's the full cycle of the, uh, of the energy that it's not only to make it or to produce it, to operate it, but then to transport it before it actually gets to the actual power plants or the power source. It's a very significant source of power or drain of power to generate a, little, a very relatively small amount of uh, power or electrical power to keep our lights on, keep the hospitals running, the schools uh, operating. Uh, but yes, and so we have to realize if we don't make a change, we'll be forced to make a change. And when change, when you're forced to into a change with a very short period of time, usually it's a very difficult period. So making that choice, make take making the decision to move towards change, and it feels like we are sensing that shift. But it really, it needs to be happening more quickly, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, what, um, even though there's a lot of um, 
vitriol in the debates. Perhaps it's because we're coming up to an election year. What's interesting to look at is each state really has their own utility board and commission um, that that monitors and approves any new project that's in place, and they also set the the, uh, energy policies for the individual state. And so what you're seeing across the U.S. is major changes in states making the move to renewable energy and starting to put in more and more battery storage to assist that rapid movement to renewable energy and also to start making preparation for the change for electric vehicles. Some areas are going faster than others. Some are using uh, financial incentives to make that move. Others are using uh, mandates on minimal energy power. But what's interesting is uh, it is not a political party one way or the other. The states actually that are predominantly Republican in the Great Plains states have probably done more to make the move to renewable energy than a lot of the West Coast states that have historically been looked at as being very pro-environmental and pro-renewable energy. So right now, the largest source for wind energy of any state is actually the state of Texas. Fifteen percent of the total power is just from wind. And they are projected to be over 30 percent of their power by wind by 2030. You've got a state like Oklahoma that 2005 had virtually no renewable energy. Well, right now, 45% of their power is from wind and solar and a bit of hydro. So you're seeing the the moves across these states. Even in uh, coal-dominant states or states that have coal mines that do provide a significant amount of jobs and revenue are also making the move to renewable energy and are trying to handle the transition as a effortlessly and efficiently as possible. Uh, That, too, is such heartening news because my feeling is, my belief is that actually as we get more and more of that momentum growing, it it seems to reach kind of a a point where it's that tipping point and we just kind of get it and are, are on this same path together. I'm not, who knows when that actually is, but it feels like we're moving in the right direction for sure. Absolutely. I think the tipping point for the utility industry and the power industry is is already starting to happen or has actually happened since we now generate more of uh, power from renewables than we do coal. Uh, But I think as more and more it takes place, people will become more uh, comfortable with the, the new reality of renewable energy, and it will appear seamless to them. There's still stereotypes or stigmas or uh, fake news out there about renewable energy. But uh, as people adjust and become uh, comfortable with the new, new operational procedures and the new, the new norm, things will be fine. Yeah, one example of that is actually offshore wind. That's been a major source of power in Europe for over a decade. And if you look at the winds, the winds offshore are, t- are more consistent and are stronger than they are onshore. Now, that's important because the difference between a a wind speed of 14 miles an hour and only 16 miles an hour is a 50% increase in electrical output. And so these have potential to be major power sources uh, and have proven to be major power sources across Western Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom and in Germany and in Denmark. But you're also seeing these wind projects, offshore wind projects being developed in Spain and France and China and uh, Korea and Japan and Taiwan. Now, the U.S. first and only uh, operational offshore wind project was off of uh, Rhode Island, began operation in December of 2000, 
six and 17. Uh, but there may be 15, 20 different major uh, offshore wind projects from Maine, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, um, and even one in the Great Lakes, uh, Lake Erie, off of uh, Cleveland, that, uh, that are being under construction or have begun, the work has actually begun on this. So that's a major change. But usually when, the, when you go with offshore wind, the first concern are by marine environmentalists and also by the fishermen relative to the impact. But what they've seen is in Rhode Island, the concern that the fishermen had initially have they've now become the biggest champion for these offshore wind farms simply because they create many reefs out there for the fish, and actually they've found the fishing has gotten better with the structures that they put out there for the wind farms, the offshore wind turbines, and that they offer no harm whatsoever to the ecosystem and the marine ecosystem or the environment and actually helps the fish in the area. So we're finding now, once with experience, and people become comfortable with these changes, that renewable energy is the right way to go. Your statements are so much great information. Let's mention uh, your website and the book's availability, Jack. Certainly. My website, it's www.jack.kerfoot.com. K-E-R-F-O-O-T dot com. And the name of my book is Fueling America, An Insider's Journey, and it's on Amazon.com. This has just really been such an incredible education this morning. I'm deeply grateful to you for sharing your knowledge with us and being able to really presented in such a way, both in your book and in conversation, that is so understandable and motivating. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for the opportunity, Kate. I certainly appreciate it.